Let's start with prayer and let's get into this. God in heaven, please bless our study of scripture today. Beautiful music, beautiful time of worship, a beautiful opportunity to affirm Agnes in the 99 years that you've given her. Be with us now as we open the text of scripture and may we have a beautiful interaction with you by your spirit through the text, through scripture is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. All right, well, we continue our study of the gospel of... Oh, that was super unpersuasive. That was not a state of origin answer, okay? I need some enthusiasm up in here. We continue our study through the gospel of... Matthew. Very good. We're in Matthew chapter 4 today, and I'm just going to go right to the screen. Our presentation today is titled, Born to Die, Born to Live. Born to Die, Born to Live. And we'll tease that out as we go. We've already mentioned that very much like the Ablazing Grace series, which we divided into seven parts, we are dividing the Matthew series, incomparable also into seven parts. Uh, the, the final of the, 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 the fourth and final of the first of those seven parts will take place today in Matthew chapter 4, where we will be highlighting the sonship of Jesus. Uh, next week, Pastor Jared will be picking up uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. He'll be talking about Jesus as preacher. The two weeks after that will be Pastor David Haupt, Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus as healer. We'll then come back to Jesus as leader, Jesus as teacher, Jesus as seer, which is another word for prophet, and then finally Jesus as conqueror. And that will bring us through all 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which will bring us right up to the end of the year. Now let's talk a little bit about what we've seen so far in Matthew chapters 1, 2, and 3, and what we're also going to see today in chapter 4. And that is a repeated and consistent emphasis on Jesus as Son. Jesus as, what did I say, everybody? Jesus as Son. Very good. So first of all, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the New Testament opens with this verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So already right at the very outset, first verse, first chapter of the New Testament is this emphasis on the sonship of Jesus. We also see it in the literal biological birth of Jesus to Mary. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bring forth a, what's the word, everybody? Son, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Also, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, quoting from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, Matthew chapter 1, he's the son, he's the son, he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, and he is the son of Mary. Now we get to Matthew chapter 2. Verse 15 says, Jesus was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew here is quoting from an Old Testament prophecy found in the book of Hosea, and he applies it to Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a moment. We'll stay in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 17. This is just after Jesus' baptism, which we talked about last Sabbath. We were together, and suddenly a voice from heaven came and said, Behold, or this is my beloved son, rather, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so son. So Jesus is presented to us in the opening chapters of Matthew as son of Abraham, son of David, son of Mary. And then in Matthew chapter 3, it is baptism, son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Matthew is telling a story. This is not a story that David Asherick is telling, and it's not even a story that the church is telling. This was the story that Matthew was telling in his original gospel that was written probably not earlier than about A.D. 60 and not later than about A.D. 80, 
when Matthew sat down to put, you know, quill to parchment, he was telling a story. And if we would have said to Matthew, if we could bring Matthew as we did Agnes right here to the front of the stage and say, Matthew, what story are you telling? Right? What, what is the story of Jesus? He would say this. I'm telling the story of Jesus' sonship, which he emphasizes in the opening chapters there. And Jesus, Matthew's point is unmistakable that Jesus is truly human. He is the son of David. David was a human. He is the son of Abraham. Abraham was a human. He is the son of Mary. Mary is a human. But then in chapter 3, he's the son of God. So he's telling this, this bipartite story that Jesus is fully human and also that he is Israel. Now, let's talk a little bit about that idea that Matthew is telling the story that Jesus is Israel. We quoted this just a moment ago, but I want you to see it again. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, the significance of this is, is remarkable because, as I mentioned already, this prophecy is actually a prophecy from the book of Hosea that was originally not a prophecy at all. It was a description about literal Israel, the nation of Israel, the genealogical descendants of Abraham. And what was being done was literal Israel was coming out of ancient Egypt. But Matthew does this remarkable plot twist thing when he comes to the New Testament. He applies this historical narrative to actual national genealogical Israel to Jesus. He says, oh yeah, the death of the infants, the massacre of the children in Bethlehem under Herod, all of that happened that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Hosea the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son, and the son here is not literal national Israel, the son here is Jesus. Now this language harkens all the way back to the book of Exodus, which I've put on the screen for you here. Look at this, Exodus chapter 4, God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. You might remember that story. God comes to, Moses uh, rather comes to the burning bush and, and God says, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. And the burning bush says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. To which Moses protests and says, who are you? I am that I am has sent you. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, no, it's very interesting when he says, let my people go. The language that he uses to describe his people is remarkable. Look at this, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. God says to Moses, then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So it's a remarkable twist of, of plot that Matthew in the New Testament says that that son is not only ancient Israel, not only national Israel, but in some significant sense, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the embodiment of Israel. He is truly a descendant of Abraham. Now, there's no need to, to get wandering off into non-Trinitarian pathways with this idea that Jesus is the Son. If you read what is actually said in the Gospel of Matthew, the Son is from Matthew chapter 2, and the Son is Israel. Out, out, it's, thus was fulfilled by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. This is not a statement about Jesus' biology, and it's not even a statement about his ontology. This is a statement about Jesus' identity as Israel. Israel was the son that was in Egypt. Jesus is the son that is in Egypt. That is the story that Matthew is telling. Now, I want to give you 15 quick points, very quick points, to show that Jesus is retracing or recapitulating the history of national Israel. I've alluded to this in the first three presentations, and here it is. 
First of all, here are just some of the parallels. There are additional parallels, but here are 15 of them very quickly. Jesus is Israel, God's son. That's what it's meant by the phrase son of God in the gospel of Matthew. He is Israel, the firstborn. So first of all, he's a son of Abraham and a son of David. He is the fulfillment not only of the Abrahamic promise, but of the monarchical idea that God would have a king. David was the epitomization of that idea. Number two, Jesus is the culmination of Israel's history, which we saw with the emphasis on the fourteen genera- the three generations, the three groups of 14, a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven, and a seven. This idea that Jesus is the fulfillment and the culmination of Israel's national history. Well, Israel's national history began with a, with a miraculous birth when Abraham and Sarah had a child miraculously. Jesus' birth is also miraculous. A man named Joseph had dreams, and that led the children of Israel into Egypt. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, has dreams. And number five here, that leads them into Egypt. They go into Egypt to avoid impending danger, imminent danger. Just as in ancient times they went to Israel or Egypt to avoid danger, so here in Jesus' time they went to Egypt to avoid danger. Number six, they remained in Egypt until the danger passed. That was the case not only for the nation of Israel, but also for Jesus. They were then called out of Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt, so too ancient Israel. As they came out of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea. As Jesus is called out of Egypt, the next event that we see in the Gospel of Matthew is that he's baptized, passes through the waters of baptism. They then entered the wilderness, as we're going to see today. Jesus enters, enters the wilderness. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the universe, in the wilderness, excuse me, purposefully recapitulating, intentionally rehearsing the history of national Israel. Jesus knows who he is, and he is embodying Israel. We're going to come to this more and more. Uh, He quotes three times, as we'll see today, from Scripture. All of the Scriptures are from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the text of Scripture that describes the wilderness wanderings of Israel. He's tempted to doubt his divine identity, which we'll see today, just as Israel was in the wilderness. They finally come to Mount Sinai where they receive the law. This is exactly what's going to happen in the New Testament where after Matthew chapter 4, as Jared's going to pick us up in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives the law from the New Testament Sinai. Jesus then comes down from the mountain and brings healing to a diseased world and he brings good news to Gentiles. So in these 15 points, Jesus knew good and well what he was doing and he knew who he was. Now don't miss this. Jesus was purposefully retracing the history of Israel. He knew that in some significant sense, Israel had entered into a covenantal relationship with God, but had failed to keep their part of the covenant. When Jesus comes, this is not just serendipitous, like, oh, wow, look at that, 40 days, 40 days, virgin birth, miraculous birth, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. No, no, no. Jesus is intentional here. He's purposeful. He's calculated. He knows that he is retracing the history of national Israel. To what end? For what purpose? Well, if we were to ask Matthew, Matthew would say, well, obviously, it's to demonstrate that he is God's son. Israel was God's son. Tell Pharaoh to let my son go, my firstborn, Israel. Jesus here retraces the history of literal national genealogical Israel, and Matthew's point is unmistakable. Jesus is God's son. Now, in what sense? What what does that mean? Let's continue to tease this out. The story that Matthew was telling is unmistakable. Jesus is Israel truly. He is God's own son and God's servant on earth, which is what Israel was called to be. 
God's servant on earth, his nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and Jesus is going to be that. Come with me now to Matthew chapter 4. That catches us right up to where we are in our study. And let's come to Matthew chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 1. On the way this morning, I was listening to uh, Josh Cunningham. He's a good friend of many in this church. And uh, he's recorded a song with his band called The Waifs. And uh, the song is Temptation. And I listened to it this morning at full volume to prepare myself for this presentation. It's actually a happy coincidence that from the time to leave the driveway in my house to enter the driveway here at church, if you drive 120, uh, which I think is the speed limit in this country, um, you, you get right here to the church, just exactly in the length of time that it takes to listen to the Waif song, Temptation. I, I cannot say that everybody will have the same results. Um, verse 1 says, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Thus Jesus was led, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that already sounds hugely counterintuitive. Why would the Spirit lead Jesus into a place of temptation? Well, the answer is obvious. Again, Jesus is recapitulating, reviewing, and revisiting the history of Israel. He's got to go to the wilderness because Israel went to the wilderness. And where Israel was unfaithful, Jesus is going to be given the opportunity here to be faithful. Verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days, not 38, not 39, not 41, not 42, 40 days. Again, a recapitulation of the 40 years. 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. I love the biblical understatement here. He didn't eat for 40 days, and then he was hungry. You don't say. Verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, and this is key, the first word that Jesus hears in the wilderness is the word if. This is going to be the whole point today. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, the first word that he hears from somebody that Matthew gives us no backstory on, he just describes him simply as the tempter, the enemy, the tempter. comes from the Greek word uh, diabolos, the one that we would refer to in the English as devil. The tempter comes to him, and the first word that Jesus hears that fall on his, his ears is if. Now, just jump up to chapter 3, verse 15, and you'll notice, or chapter 3, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 3 says, Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is an emphatic, declarative statement. This is my Son, and man, I'm happy with Him. I remind you that by the time we get to Jesus here in Matthew chapter 3, He's already in His late 20s, early 30s. So he's already lived a significant portion of his life. In fact, he's going to die very young. So he's already lived the better part of 95% of his life. And God can look down over those years, over those decades of Jesus' life, whether it was two and a bit or three and a bit, and he can say, man, this is my son. This is my servant. This is my Israel. This is my representative. I am pleased with him. So he hears that emphatic declaration from God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But when he goes into the wilderness... The first word that he hears is the word if. Verse 3, if you are the Son of God, cause these stones to be turned into bread. Notice that each of the temptations begins exactly the same way. Verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the height of the temple. And notice here again, uh, uh, verse 9, all of these things I will give you If you will fall down and worship me. The if here also implies that Jesus could not be the Son of God. Fall down and worship me. You are lower than me. You are subordinate to me. And so in each temptation, there is the procession on the assumption of doubt. 
not on the, not on the foundation of, of positivity and of solidity, this is my son, but on the, the uh, platform of doubt. If you are, if you are, if you are. Jesus was a real human being who was tempted to all of the vicissitudes and ups and downs and roller coasters experiences of life. When he was hungry, when he was feeling dejected, when he was feeling lonely, it would have been very easy for him to believe the if. And check this out. Romans chapter 8. This got me thinking about our Bible study this last week. We have a lovely Romans Bible study that happens at my house on Wednesday evenings. It's been going outstanding. And this last week, we had about 20 people crammed into the living room there. And we read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. And I want you to hear this. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. That sounds like what we just read. Jesus was led by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. And here the the Apostle Paul says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Hey, that's the very thing that we just read in Matthew. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Paul here many years later says, no, no. All that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons and the daughters, that is to say, the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Adoption, of course, is the legal arrangement by which you receive a child that was not formerly yours. The spirit of adoption. As an adopted person, I resonate with this. I love this. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the colloquial way of saying, Daddy, Papa. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit and tells us that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, and I love this, then we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, let me tell you why I went to this Romans text, even though we're studying Matthew. Paul seems to be making the point here that Jesus, through His sonship, Jesus, through His faithfulness, Jesus, through his obedience, has opened the door in the same way that the Red Sea was open, in the same way that the wilderness was open before Israel anciently. A way has been opened for us. Jesus is the heir, and we are now joint heirs with Jesus. Was Jesus the son? Paul says, then you are the sons. Was Jesus led by the Spirit? Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, then you are the sons. Was Jesus the son of God by adoption? You, or was Jesus the son of God? You are the sons and daughters of God by adoption. And we're going to come back to this point in just a second because it's going to really be our punchline. But let me just make this point. What's the, what's the story here? 2,000-year-old story about some tempter and a, and, a, and a provocative young rabbi wandering around the desert of Palestine. Is that the story? That's not the story. That is the larger story. What's the takeaway? I shouldn't say that's not the story. That is the story. What's the takeaway? Okay, that's too easy to call antiquated. That's too easy to call ancient. That's too easy to call dusty. What's the modern story? What's the takeaway? The enemy wants you to doubt your God-given identity. That's the takeaway. The enemy proceeds on if. God proceeds on this is. The enemy proceeds on if. And I want to tell you today, friends, God wants, not God, the enemy wants you to doubt your God-given identity and God wants you to believe your God-given identity. Look at, the, look at what's on the screen here. God is too good to lie. He is too kind to be cruel. He is too wise to err. So when he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons and daughters of God, that means you really are his child. And if you find yourself in a position of doubt, if you find yourself saying, I I wonder, am I really God's son? Am I really God's daughter? That is the very same kind of proposition that Jesus met with when he heard in the wilderness, 
if you are the Son of God. Friends, today, because of what Jesus has done, because He has made a way through the Red Sea, because He has made a way through the wilderness, because He has made a way through Israel's history, you are God's sons and daughters if you put your faith in Jesus. Do not doubt. Do not disbelieve. Now, let's, let's go to the second temptation here. I love that. Or the first temptation, in fact. Cause these stones to be made bread. Verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We'll return to that. Verse 4. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, the very height of, of the second temple there, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes from a psalm. For as it is written, he will give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, you can throw yourself down from the temple's height. No harm will come to you. Even Scripture says it. Scripture says no harm will come to you. You're God's son, after all. No harm could come to God's son. Jesus responds in verse 7 again, It is written, answering each time from the text of Deuteronomy, as we've mentioned, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, this is a very interesting point. I want you to see what I've written here on the screen. This text is proof enough, it is evidence enough that the Bible can be used for evil and unrighteous purposes. Can the church say amen to that? The Bible can be used for evil and unrighteous purposes, and not only can, theoretically, the history of Western civilization tells us that the Bible has been used for nefarious and terrible and evil and oppressive regimes and people and situations. In other words, just because somebody is using the Bible or talking about the Bible or speaking Scripture does not mean in any way that what they're saying is pious or beautiful or, or, or uh, noble. The Bible can be quoted in a way that you can actually get the exact opposite meaning out of the text. And, and Lucifer here, Satan in the, in the wilderness, does that thing. Hey, the Bible says. Just because somebody says, just because a preacher says, just because a church says, the Bible says something, does not mean that they are quoting the Bible correctly and that they are quoting the Bible contextually. Now, of course, here, the onus of responsibility at some level was on Jesus to know that this was a misstatement and a misquotation of the intent of Scripture. And I suppose that for us here today, the onus of responsibility at some level is on us to know Scripture well enough to know, in the words of the old preacher H.M.S. Richards, he used to say, you should know the Bible well enough to know when somebody misquotes it. And the, the thing that I fear is that many of us don't know that. I actually did this thing one time that uh, actually ended up backfiring slightly, but it was a good idea. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. I stood up and I, said, I just like, preached with all of the enthusiasm and energy that I could muster, and I was saying a bunch of things that were totally biblically inaccurate. But I kept going like, amen, amen, church, amen, and people were like, uh, amen, amen. It was just so easy. It was actually terrifying how easy it was to carry a congregation along with enthusiasm even when what you were saying was purposefully, intentionally going against the tenor and the fiber of Scripture. Beloved, somebody should have been able to say, ah, uh, I'm not saying amen to that. What are you on about? That is not what the text says. And, and Jesus here could say, no, 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 no. That is a text from Scripture, but you have quoted it inappropriately. You have quoted it non-contextually. Scripture can be used for evil, nefarious, and unrighteous purposes. And notice the third temptation here. Verse 8 says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, all of this stuff, all these kingdoms I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus responds, away with you, Satan. The word is Satan, enemy, adversary. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. In each of these temptations, we find... A fascinating insight, an insight into the larger categories of temptation that all humanity faces. You see, friends, Jesus was not only retracing and recapitulating the history of Israel. In a significant way, Jesus was retracing and recapitulating the history of Adam and Eve, our forebears in the garden. It is quite fascinating to note that when Adam and Eve fell in that original passage there in Genesis chapter 3, they fell in these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. First of all, he says, turn these stones into bread, lust of the flesh. Subordinate God's will to your fleshly desires, lust of the flesh. Then it says, all the kingdoms of the earth I will give you if you just bow it. Look at how glorious they are, lust of the eyes. Don't you want what your eyes see? That is the, the, the bane the, of modern consumerism. You see it, you want it. And the advertisers are, are so good at making us feel uh, dissatisfied with something that we were perfectly satisfied with last year or the year before. But now I see it and I want it. It's new and it's shiny and I need that. Jesus was presented with a very similar temptation. Look at all this stuff you can have. And then finally, take yourself up onto the height of the temple, Jesus. Throw yourself down. Everybody will see that you're God's son. The angels won't allow you to be injured or otherwise hurt. They will guide you safely and gracefully down to the earth just like a feather, and you will be seen for what you actually are, the earth's Messiah. You'll be received. It'll be great. Now, here's an interesting point. In each of these temptations, the enemy appeals to a legitimate desire. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. In each of these temptations, in each of these points of conflict, the enemy highlights a legitimate desire. Okay, was it legitimate for Jesus to be hungry? Of course, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Was it legitimate for Jesus to want to receive the kingdoms of the earth? Of course it was. That's why he came to earth. He came to earth to expand the kingdom of God and to swallow up and engulf all other kingdoms so the people of different nationalities and cultures and linguistic backgrounds could all come into the kingdom of God. As Scripture says, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And so, so this was a legitimate temptation for him to receive the earth. Was it a legitimate desire for Jesus to be received as Messiah and to be seen as God's true son? Was that a legitimate desire? So to be hungry, to receive the earth... And to be seen as God's son, every one of those a legitimate desire. And I want to say this to you today, church. The greatest temptations that you will face is not temptations to desires that you find disgusting or unnatural or illegitimate. The fact that you find them disgusting or unnatural or illegitimate, it it, it makes it not tempting for you. There are things that I see people doing and I just think that doesn't tempt me in any way. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. So the tempter doesn't come with illegitimate temptations. Watch this. The tempter comes with legitimate desires but invites us to fulfill them in illegitimate ways. Do you see the difference? It was a legitimate desire to be hungry. It is a legit... We talked just a couple weeks ago about God's sexual... Uh, 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 his sexual ideal... And that Scripture reveals that God's sexual ideal is not virginity. It is not abstinence. That God's sexual ideal is is intimacy. 
that it's connectivity. And, and yet, how many today are tempted Ill, to illegitimately fulfill legitimate desires. The sexual desire, the, social, the desire for a social, sexual, intimate, personal, emotional connection, is that a legitimate desire, yes or no? Of course it is, but the temptation is to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. So the, t- the tempter plugs in to a legitimate desire, but invites us to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. All of these temptations were legitimate temptations, and that's why they could actually get traction. There are things that you could tempt me with that I wouldn't be the least bit tempted with because they have no traction with me. They don't resonate with me. I don't find them interesting. I don't find them attractive. But there are things that that I do find resonance with, that I do find tempting, that I do find alluring. And I find that in my case, most often those are legitimate temptations that I'm being tempted to fulfill in an illegitimate, ungodly, or inappropriate way. And thus the tempter continues his M.O., the very thing he did with Jesus in the wilderness. In 1 John chapter 2, we're invited to consider that these three categories of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are the larger categories of temptation in general. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, for all that is in the world, and here comes this tripartite division, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the world is passing away, and the lust of it But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, in the case of Jesus, the lust of the flesh was the body and the bread. Subjugate the will of God to your bodily desires for food. The lust of the eyes was, as we've mentioned, the world's glory. All the kingdoms of the earth I will give you. And finally, the pride of life. Throw yourself down and you will be seen to be really, really awesome. Now, I'm going to just go back here briefly to a scripture that I've already quoted, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. Look at this. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And I love this. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage. What an interesting thing to say. Paul sets in opposition. Paul sets in contrast. He sets in tension, adoption on one side and bondage on the other. What does that mean you have not received the spirit of bondage? You have not received the spirit of enslavement. You have not received the spirit of slavery. Well, on the first temptation, it means this, friends, and I want to tell you today, you do not have to be a slave to your bodily desires. Can somebody say amen to that? Now, now, churches in the past and people in the past have made the giant mistake of saying that any bodily desire is by definition enslavement, but that is not the case. Food is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I'm looking forward to eating a big meal this afternoon. My wife has prepared an Indian feast, and I'm looking forward to eating it with some friends. It's going to be great. So having a bodily desire, whether it's a desire for appetite or, or sexual appetite, any bodily desire, a desire for sleep, a desire for water, a bodily desire in and of itself is, is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a God-glorifying, beautiful thing. We talked about this today in Sabbath school, how the universe has a kind of symmetry to it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, not only are there desires, there are the resolutions of those desires. So Lewis famously said that a duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. A baby wants milk. Well, there is such a thing as milk. People desire sexuality, uh, sexual connections and sexuality. There is such a thing as sex. So there is always this desire followed by resolve, desire followed by resolve. But there is a difference between being in control of your bodily desires, being 
aware of your bodily desires and being a slave to your bodily desires. Okay? We live in a day and age today where it's very easy to become enslaved. Food manufacturers, I actually read a book about this a couple years ago called Salt, Sugar, and Fat. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a great book, Salt, Sugar, and Fat. And the short version is that makers of food and manufacturers of food, mass-marketed food, they know that the foods that they are making are addictive. They are addictive. They're addictive in the very same kinds of way that drugs are addictive. And they are purposefully making food with certain uh, concentrations and ratios of salt, sugar, and fat to make food irresistible. In fact, the book goes on to say, seemingly irresistible. The book goes on to say that that the food companies of today are in the very same precarious position that the tobacco companies were in two decades ago, where all of a sudden there's going to be a mass public outcry, like, hey, wait a minute, you made something that you knew was addictive. It was purposefully addictive, and look at what happened. Lung cancer, emphysema, etc. And and the, the food companies are terrified, shaking in their boots right now, because the emerging body of evidence suggests that they know that foods are addictive, that they purposefully make foods that are addictive, and we have obesity epidemics, we have diabetes epidemics, we have heart disease diabetic, uh, epidemics, and all of, so much of this is tied directly to the lifestyle choices that we make, the foods that we eat, and other things. So, beloved, I want to tell you something today. You do not have to be a slave to your sexual desires. You can be in possession of sexual desires and have it be a blessing from God. You do not have to be a slave to food or to, as we talked about last week, alcohol or caffeine or any other uh, 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 substance that would numb your brain and numb your, your cognitive capacities. It's one thing to have bodily desires. It's an entirely different thing to be a slave to them. And the good news today from the temptation is that Jesus as a human showed us that there is a way to navigate through and not be a slave to your bodily desires. You can hold your body in subjection to a higher standard, to a higher ideal, and that standard is God's will. Number two, you do not have to be a slave to your eyes and fatuations. Now, we, when we think about the infatuation of the eyes, we often think in the context of Jesus' statement that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And there is no doubt that we live in by far the most sensual age that has ever existed. Okay, study after study after study shows that the vast majority of men that have access to the internet struggle with pornography. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a majority of men. And statistically, that would mean that the majority of men in this church either have struggled or do now struggle with pornography. It's a statistical reality because the statistical realities show that there is no real differentiation between churchgoers and non-churchgoers. So you should probably disabuse your mind right now of this idea that you are suffering alone, that you are suffering in silence. The, 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 the truth of the matter is, is that even if it's not talked about, even if it's not spoken of openly, there are a great many men, and no doubt some women in this church as well, who wrestle with the availability and the ubiquity of sexual imagery. Now here's a tricky thing. The tricky thing is, is that again, this is tapping into a natural, innate, and positive desire that God has put within human beings to be attracted to other human beings. It's a beautiful thing that God has created, but it's as if Satan has gotten in or our own brains have gotten in and mixed the cake mixer or stirred the soup a little too much. And now we have the availability of just about anything and everything that you could possibly imagine with the advent of modern technology. 
Okay, so that's out there. But there are other ways in which people become attracted to the seemingly irresistible infatuation of the eyes, and that's through advertising and marketing. Just a word on this, and I don't want to meddle, but I do want to just put it out there. When we launched, and I'm, I might get a little too close to home here, so just be prepared for the pastor to upset you. When we launched the Bring It campaign, we had a few people, not a lot, fortunately, but we had a few people come to me and to others and say, oh, that's a lot of money, pastor. That's a lot of money to be spending. Are you sure we should be spending that money? That's, that's you know, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars That's a lot of money. Shouldn't we be spending our money on other things? Shouldn't we be giving our money to the poor? Shouldn't we? Aren't there more important things that we could be spending our money on? And the answer is this. Yes, of course. You are welcome to give 90% of your income to the poor and give none to the Bring It campaign. You are welcome to give 80% of your money to the poor and give none of it to the Bring It campaign. The truth of the matter is that a, a significant percentage, and I don't know the percentage because I literally don't know, but a significant percentage of people in this room right now would be living beyond their financial means. And there's a reason. You cannot resist the newest, the best, the, the shiniest. You've got to have that one. You've got to have it. So it's not just a sexual temptation. It can be a temptation for that new tennis racket, that new boat, that new bicycle, that new car, that new, I, you need that new dress. Never mind the fact you got enough dresses in your closet to clothe half of, you know, Cambodia. You need that new one. Now, again, if the shoe fits here, wear it. And if it doesn't fit, don't wear it. But the truth of the matter is, is that, again, it's just a matter of statistics, People, credit card debt is at an all-time high, right? Consumer debt is at an all-time high because, because it's easy to get stuff that you want. And the advertisers put up those fancy little slogans that you can't forget. And they put it and it's shiny and they backlight it and the photographers know what they're doing and the right angles and the jingles and everything. And before you know it, you can't stop thinking about that new fill-in-the-blank, right? I have my fill-in-the-blank. It's cameras, I think I've been open and honest with you about this in the past. Right now, I have a great camera, but it's not great enough. Now, never mind. The camera that I own today is at least five times better than the camera I owned five years ago. But man, it's not enough. How can I get the next one? And the temptation for me, and probably the temptation for you, living in this culture, in this situation, is to try and get a little more, to stretch those finances so you can get every possible thing. So here's what I want to say to you, beloved. Yes, we are raising a lot of money with the Bring It campaign, but the truth of the matter is is that most of us are not making this decision. Should I send this $2,500 to the poor, or should I put this $2,500 in the Bring It campaign? That's not the question most of us are having. The debate that many of us are having is, should I get that new bike or should I support the Bring It campaign? And beloved, if, if, if that is the, or not just the Bring It campaign, to return your tithe, your offering, to give money to ADRA, Asian Aid, anyway, I'm just using that as an example. Beloved, the point is here, you can resist the marketers. You can resist the jingles. You can resist the 2017 model. You can resist the temptation to consumerism. I would invite you, when Arise comes this next year, okay, Remind me of this and I'll give you the dates. When Arise comes this next year, we have a gentleman that comes into us from the, from the I think he's at the Union of the Division, uh, D- uh, Pratt, David Pratt. And what is it? Brendan Pratt. Thank you, Brendan Pratt. Brendan Pratt will come to us and he does, this is what he's done his PhD dissertation on. He gives us a four-hour class, or maybe it's six-hour class, 
on consumerism as a worldview. And he shares the statistics of modern consumerism and how consumerism, like communism or democracy or all of the other isms, how consumerism is the new religion. It's the new worldview. It's the new religion of the, you know, something's got to replace God. And the new thing that's replacing God, especially in first world Western countries, is consumerism. You remind me of it. You can come sit in on the Arise class for free. You listen to the statistic. You listen to the presentation. And then you ask yourself, looking in the mirror, looking at your checkbook, looking at your finances, am I a victim of a modern idolatry known as consumerism? And the truth of the matter is, is that many of us in here are. And that's just a statistical reality. That's not a statement of judgmentalism. It's a statement of reality. But guess what? Jesus showed us that our eyes can see something that's really desirable and we can still say no. One of the most liberating things is to go into a store, see something that you really want, have the money to buy it, and not get it. I tell you, it often feels better than purchasing it. It often feels better. Go in there, Total ability to buy. Now, I think I'll pass on this one. Okay. Thirdly here, you don't have to be a slave to other people's expectations. You don't have to be a slave to your bodily desires. You don't have to be a slave to your eyes infatuations. And you do not have to be a slave to other people's expectations. The temptation here, Jesus was presented with the temptation. Look, other people will think you're cool if you float like a feather down from the temple. You will look like a Messiah. Right now, you look kind of like a dirty, unassuming provocative young rabbi that looks like you don't even have a shower or a place to lay your head, okay? You don't look very cool right now, Jesus, but you could look super cool. And I want to gear this temptation toward our young people in particular. As teenagers, and I know this because my son's birthday, 15th birthday was just this last week, and you know, you blink and you think, holy cow, am I really the parent of a teenager, a 15-year-old? Well, there's a, a simple sociological, pedagogical reality that's taking place when children reach their teens, they are becoming increasingly aware that their parents are not right about everything. And then they eventually get to the place where they realize their parents are not right about anything. But that's another story. Or at least that's what they think. So here's what happens. As children begin to have an increasing awareness that they are their own person and they don't just have to take mom's word for it or dad's word for it, this, this develops into a natural dependence, or independence rather, a natural independence which we sometimes view incorrectly as rebellion, okay? A natural independence for a 14, 15, 16, 18, or 19-year-old child is not necessarily rebellion. That's just them, as you did yourself, finding their way in the world. But here's what happens with teenagers. As the influence of parents becomes less and less, the influence of their peers becomes more and more, more and more important. And what we need to teach our teenagers is that there's nothing wrong with valuing the perspective of your peers. There's nothing wrong with valuing the perspective of those around you, but it's a very different thing. And not only teenagers are susceptible to this, we all are, but I'm just highlighting our teenagers here because they sometimes probably wonder how this applies to them. The the, the thing is to teach them it's fine to value the perspective and, and opinion of your peers. It's a totally different thing to be a slave to it. And as parents, as responsible parents, we need to teach our children how to be aware of their, of their peers' expectations, how to be aware of the larger cultural expectations, but not to be a slave to those expectations. And the same goes for us as well. 
It goes for men in their various groups. It goes for business people in their various groups. It goes for women in their various groups. We have all these means and mechanisms of comparison. Beloved, at the end of the day, you do not want to be a slave to other people's expectations of who and what you should be. You want to be a slave and a servant to God because He always has your best interest in mind. All right. As we leave the temptation, Jesus goes to the... To the uh, shore of Galilee. He calls some disciples. Um, We'll talk more about that in the future when Jesus calls all of the disciples. So we'll leave that by the wayside. But I do just want to go here to verse 23 and end on this. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 says, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This is quite interesting. Jesus is presented as a healer first and a preacher second. The preaching comes in chapter 5. The healing comes in chapter 4. And the last time I checked, it goes like this. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So Jesus is first presented as a, as a healer. He is then presented as a preacher. And I want to say this to you today, beloved. I'm not talking about medicine. I'm not talking about doctors. I'm not talking about the modern medical establishment and all of the institutionalism and everything that goes along with that. Nothing heals like love. Nothing heals like love. Just this week, I had an opportunity to be exposed to an, an, a statement from Ellen White that somehow had avoided, that uh, had evaded my awareness. This does happen when somebody has written hundreds of thousands of pages. And this statement was presented to me, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to work that statement into this sermon. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you have to read this. You, you, th- this is going to be a life-changing, mind-blowing statement if you will embrace it. I, I'm just like... I'm falling over myself to to read this statement, to embrace it again and again and again. Notice this. She wrote in 1908, all the fatherly love which has come down from generation to generation, which is very important for me because Father's Day in America was just celebrated this last week. It was a time to think about dads and fathers. So notice what she says here. All the fatherly love that has come down from every generation through the channel of human hearts All that fatherly love. I have been the recipient of a tremendous amount of fatherly love. And I'd like to think that I have been the generator and the communicator of a lot of fatherly love. I see some great fathers around here. Some great dads. Just in this room, there is so much fatherly love. But Ellen White says, add up all of the fatherly love that has ever flown and pulsated through any human heart. Okay, we'll do that. All the springs of tenderness which have opened in the souls of men. And there's a lot of tenderness in here. And that's not just a masculine thing. That's a feminine thing as well. They are but as a tiny ripple to the boundless ocean when compared with the infinite, exhaustless love of God. Tongue cannot utter it. Pen cannot portray it. You You may meditate upon this love every day of your life. You can search the Scriptures diligently in order to understand it. You may summon every intellectual power that you have and capability that God has given to you in the endeavor to comprehend the love and compassion of your Heavenly Father, and yet there is an infinity beyond. You may study that love for ages, and yet you will never fully comprehend the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of God in giving His Son to die for the world Eternity alone can never fully reveal it. Church, can you say amen? Yet, 
Yet, the fact that you'll never understand it, you will never comprehend it, there is an infinity beyond. Yet, as we study the Bible and meditate upon the life of Christ, which is what we're doing in the Incomparable series, and the plan of redemption, these great themes will open to our understanding. What's the final phrase there? More and more. More and 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 more. We mentioned last week, two weeks ago, that ever since the death of those infants, Herod slaughtering the young ones in Bethlehem, that Jesus was living in the shadow of the cross. And when Satan tempts him to throw himself down from the temple, it was a temptation to death. I mean, any natural, normal person would have died under those circumstances. There's just little hint after little hint after little hint that Jesus is living in the shadow of the cross. Even when he agreed to be baptized by John the Baptist, John's like, no, 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 no. You should be baptizing me. And he's like, no, we've got to do this. In going through the baptism, the holding of the breath, the burial, and the, the coming up, Jesus was reenacting. He was embodying the very death that he himself would die in just a few years. So every chapter, Jesus is living in the shadow of the cross. And I want to say this. The death of Jesus is not God demanding sacrifice, but God becoming sacrifice. That's why she says, you study for the rest of your life. You will never even begin to comprehend the infinity beyond, the infinity that lies beyond that is the love of the heavenly Father. This is not requiring or demanding sacrifice. It is God becoming sacrifice. Jesus said something that he knew was self-evidently the case. To his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15, verse 13. I love this quotation. It's one of my current favorite quotations from Alvin Plantinga, one of the most forward-thinking philosophers on the planet today. The guy is an absolute genius of a thinker. And he famously said, I love this statement. I just quote it in every context that I get the opportunity to do so. He's telling the gospel story, the the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the embodiment of God in a man named Jesus, and his death and his resurrection. And he says these words, this overwhelming display of, what's the word? This overwhelming display of love and mercy is not merely the greatest story ever told. Plantinga, whose mind is far in advance of any mind that I possess or have ever even met. The guy is an absolute genius. He says, this story is not just the greatest story ever told. He says, this is the greatest story that ever could be told. You can't imagine a better story than God taking responsibility for his creation. God becoming a man. God coming to earth to bear the consequences of the sin of his own creation making himself amenable to the strictest laws of his own justice. What what was the temptation there? Cast yourself down, Matthew chapter 4. Well, this sounds very similar to a temptation that Jesus will face later in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, those that passed by saw Jesus on the cross. They blasphemed, wagging their heads, and they said, Ah, yeah, 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 we heard you say you could destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is a very interesting thing because both are satanic deceptions. In Matthew chapter 4, the satanic deception is to throw yourself down, endangering your life. In Matthew chapter 27, the the satanic deception is to crawl down from the cross and save your life. Ah, But hadn't Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel, he will save it? Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. Let him come down. We will believe him. Let him trust in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew chapter 3. If you are the son of God, cause these stones. If you are, cast yourself down. If you are, bow down and worship me. And when Jesus comes to the end of his life, the emphatic declaration, he believed his identity. He said, I am the son of God. And you might be tempted to think that the nails held Jesus to the cross. But Jesus was held as if, as if moved by an unseen hand. He was led to Calvary's cross and he was held there, not by the nails keeping him in place, but by the unseen hand of love. His, he stayed on the cross voluntarily, willingly, volitionally. No nail can keep the Messiah on a tree. When you know who you are, then you will know what you're supposed to do. That's what's taking place in the baptism. That's what's taking place in the temptation. Jesus knows who he is. And you get this sense as you read the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus will not be moved. He will not be turned. He will not be humiliated. He will not be intimidated. Oh, Herod's trying to kill you. Tell that fox I'm going to keep working. Scribes and the Pharisees out to kill him. Jesus will not move. He has set his face as a flint. Why do we get this sense of directionality? Why do we get this sense of intentionality? Why do we get this strong sense of destiny and of drive in the life of Jesus? The answer is so simple because he knew who he was. And when you know who you are, then you will know what you are supposed to do. And the problem with many of us, and I want to go back to our teenagers here, the problem with many teenagers is they don't know what to do with their lives because they don't yet know who they are. They do not yet believe you are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. You are a joint heir with Christ. Mark Twain famously said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Jesus was not only born as the son, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Mary, the son of God, Israel embodied. He not only was born, he knew why he was born. Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 are all about identity, which is why what was, Lucifer, what was Satan's temptation to cause him to doubt the identity? If you are, if you are, if you are, and I want to suggest that this is very much his MO, the temptation for you and I today is to doubt our God-given identity. I leave you with this. Jesus knew why he was born. He was born to die. And nothing and no one, not Satan himself, was going to talk him out of it. He was born to die. And he was born to die. This is the, this is the punchline. Final slide here so that you could be born to live. You were born to live. You were not born to die. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. When Jesus went into the waters of baptism and John the Baptist protested, Jesus knew good and well what he was doing. He knew that he was reenacting, or enacting, I should say, pre-enacting would be the best way to say it. Jesus was pre-enacting his own death burial, and resurrection so that you and I wouldn't have to die. We might have to take a sleep. We might have to take a snooze. We might have to take a nap. But in Jesus, because he was born to die, you can be born to live. And the invitation that God extends to you, the invitation that God extends to me, don't be a slave, don't be a slave, don't be a slave, be a son. Be a daughter. Father in heaven, 
Today, we don't want to proceed from if. We want to proceed from is. Not if you are God's sons and daughters, but we are. He is. She is. Father, I claim the promise of Romans chapter 8 on behalf of my local church and all those that are listening in. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We have not received the spirit of slavery or of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. Father, help us not to be slaves to our bodily desires. Help us not to be slaves to the infatuations of modernity. Help us not to be slaves to other people's expectations. Father, help us to see ourselves as we are, as sons and daughters. Father, in the same way that Jesus was driven, there was a sense of of inevitability and destiny about his life. I pray, Father, for us that we wouldn't be wandering willy-nilly, serendipitously here and there, but that we would have a sense of direction, a sense of purpose. I want to pray again, especially for our teens, for our preteens, that they would know who they are so that they will then know what they're supposed to do. Father, do that for all of us. May we know who we are, and may we then know what we're supposed to do. May we go forward, whether into the wilderness or into the glories of life and beauty and happiness, wherever we go, Father. May we, like Jesus, as we see him in the Gospel of Matthew, be walking in step with you, marching to the beat of your drum, driven not by culture, not by popularity, and not by our own internal desires that would lead us astray, but may we be driven by the unfathomable incomprehensible, not just driven, but drawn by the unfathomable, incomprehensible, inestimable love of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.